Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 295. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 295 you're listening to. Yep, we are getting ever closer to number 300. Just a few weeks to go. My guest today is Rato Peter, who's a producer and engineer based here in the Bay Area. He's worked with a load of people, including the Counting Crows, Green Day, Flipside, Smash Mouth, Jason Becker, Adrian Stern, and a host of other people. And he speaks to us from his home and home studio located in Oakland, California. So, Rato Peter, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about incorporating the family into your plans. So, you want to be a recording professional. Yep, lots of people do. And... Some of us see it from different angles. Some of us want to be, you know, big time producers, big time mixers, mastering engineers. Some of us want to go down the path of studio ownership and uh, create some kind of empire. And some of us just want to record local bands. Some of us uh, want to work in the other forms of audio that include a multitude of things that you've heard me mention a thousand times over, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention them. So post-production, location sound, sound design, uh, sound effects editors, you know, the list goes on and on and on. There's just lots of audio possibilities. And when we make our plans, you know, we make lists of gear to buy. We find buildings that we want to get involved in for studios. We think of the bands that we want to work with or the clients that we want to work with. And then we think how, if we're borrowing money to put that all together or spending money to put that all together, we're thinking, okay, well, how is this all going to work? And how am I going to pay this money back? But one thing that I think a lot of us fail to do, and I'm guilty of it, I've done it before, and that is figuring out what role your family plays in the business. And I'm not talking about hiring your family. I mean, if you want to do that, that's cool. But I'm talking about the time you make for your family. I saw a great movie last night, and it was called Blinded by the Light, and it was about the story of a young kid whose family is from Pakistan, and they moved to England. And it's based in the 80s, and the kid's going along, and he's got a very domineering father who, you know, wants him to do what the father wants him to do. And one of his friends turns him on to Bruce Springsteen. And the whole movie circulates around the kid becoming obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. The lyrics, the message, everything. And the kid just wants to be a writer. And long story short, you get to the point where the kid realizes that he can still be a writer, but he doesn't have to sacrifice his family uh, in terms of his love for his family and respect for his family to do it. Plus, he's just a rebelling teenager. So you get where I'm going with this. You can be an audio professional. Nobody's stopping you from that. But if you've got a family, make sure that you don't sacrifice time spent with them, financial decisions that you plan with them, and the overall well-being of that family just so you can pursue your dream. I'm guilty of becoming myopic in my pursuits in the past, and it really caused a lot of tension. I kind of had to have the same realization that this kid in Blinded by the Light did. And by the way, that movie's based on a uh, an actual person. It's a real story, and uh, it's a very touching movie. I will uh, include a link in the show notes. But I think you understand what I'm saying, is that family is important, and whether that's your parents or your siblings or your your spouse or your kids. And if you're just a lone wolf out there and you have no responsibilities to anybody, you know, eventually you will have responsibilities to somebody. At some point you will have responsibilities to somebody. So start to figure out how you can incorporate a work-life balance into your plan. And that work-life balance is not just about time, it's about money too. 
Remember, friends, don't go and get yourself in a shit ton of debt to buy a bunch of gear and put your families in jeopardy financially. You got you to think all these things through. It's a, it's a whole package. Because if you're happy at home and everybody's cool, then you're going to be a lot happier at work working with whatever clients you have. And I don't care if you're working with the local band down the street or Lady Gaga, or working on some big film, the next Star Wars or whatever. Make sure that things are cool at home based on the decisions you make for your, your work. You know, if you just go barreling into it with kind of a, you know, all-in attitude that doesn't factor in your family, I think that in the long run, that's not sustainable. And you will find that you might uh, end up sacrificing the family that you really, truly, truly love. When I had troubles with my studio in San Francisco, you know, that was 2007 to 2012. One of my older brothers said the most um, absolute mind-blowing thing to me. I was really struggling with letting the studio go and moving on because my identity was so wrapped up in it. And my brother said to me, you know, in regards to my kids, he said, I know that you think this is your baby, but your real babies are at home and they need you and they need your focus and they need your discipline to help take care of them and not be such an asshole. That, as you can imagine, really stuck with me and caused me to leave my studio. And it caused the creation of the Working Class Audio Podcast, which began my search for answers about all of this. So let's wrap it up. Follow your dreams, be an audio professional. I don't care what discipline of audio you wanna be in, but whatever you do in your planning, factor in the family, the family's finances, and the work-life balance factor, of course, to spend time with the family. And I think that you'll find that you will become a better business person, a better audio professional, and a better brother, sister, parent, spouse, you know, whatever your family role is, you will become better at that because you will understand that your business is important and your family is even more important. So get it together and make sure that you take care of that. You know, occasionally you're gonna have to make a family sacrifice here and there. You're gonna miss an event uh, that's important here and there. But don't make a habit of spending your life doing that because you will regret it, I guarantee you. That's it. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link. 
book me in for an hour on a Zoom call and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we could sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it, Rato Peter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Rato, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I've never met you, and I'm kind of stunned that I haven't met you because we've both been here a long time in, in the Bay Area. Yeah, I know. It's kind of weird. And it's not like the scene is a huge scene. It's, it's, a, it's a small little community. So I think we might have run into each other at parties and stuff, but I, we've never really connected. Correct. Yeah. You, in fact, on the phone the other day, you said we may have met at a 25th Street recording studio party or Christmas party. Yep. Yep. So Love those. Uh, yeah, those are fun. Those are a lot of fun. Well, let me learn a bit about you here. Where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Switzerland in a small provincial town called Arau. I did my high school there after high school, which lasts a little longer in Switzerland. You graduate when you're about 19 years old. After that, I had to go to the military service like every man has to in Switzerland. And after that, I went to Boston to join the Berklee College of Music and do the music production and engineering degree there. So that's how I ended up in the States. I'm curious. So very much like Israel, national service is a requirement. What do you do when you do national service? (laughs) It was a little special for me because I've been playing drums since I was eight years old. And so when it came to join the army, I wanted to be in the the music and military music. So I auditioned as a drummer and they only take very few. They only take two drummers per Canton, which is like a state, but those states are about as big as counties here. So only two per year and and I had to audition. It was pretty hard auditioning, but I got in and so I was the drummer. So I did a lot of marching band music and it was a basic training. So you do like a 15 week basic training and then every year you do a repetition course after that. But for me, after the first basic training, I left Switzerland to go to school. So I only did the basic training and then and then quit the army. So I played music for 15 weeks, played a lot of drums, so much though, so that I actually got tendonitis on my right hand hmm. and couldn't play drums for over a year, which wasn't very fun being at a music school in Boston, not really being able to play a lot of drums. But the other fun thing was that as a musician, they didn't give us guns. So we were the only troops that didn't have guns. We had a Swiss Army knife, of course. Of course. But they didn't they didn't trust the musicians with guns. So that was I I was totally okay with that. <laughs> I think that's just a good policy. No guns yes. for the musicians. <laughs> yes. Too dangerous. Well, so why did you choose to go to Berkeley School of Music? Had that been in your plans before doing national service? So I knew when I was like 17 or 18, I knew I wanted to get into music production. I wanted to become an engineer. And I had to find a school that would give me that education. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to college. And I looked at different schools. There's, there was an SAE in Berlin at that time. That this, was, this was early 90s. SAE was in Berlin. In Germany, there was a Tonmeister program, which is a very vigorous engineering program where you have a musical education as well. You basically become a conductor, but you also know how to build a compressor. It's very an advanced program. And me being a drummer, I knew I wasn't going to be able to to join that. I just wasn't good enough of a musician. And then Berkeley with more a modern music program with jazz and, and pop and rock music that they do there, I find it was a really good spot for me. And then I played in a big band in, in my high school and the leader, he went to Berkeley as well. And so he told me about Berkeley College of Music and I actually met the head of the department. He came and visited. And so I talked to him and kind of sold me on it. And so it was kind of clear that for me, that was the best route to go. 
And I was, I was kind of done living in a small provincial town at that point. I was ready to leave and see different things, meet different people, and have different experiences. So I, I was really excited to leave. How long did you attend Berkeley? About three and a half years. Because my high school was a little bit longer, I was able to have some transfer credits. And only instead of a four-year program, it was only three and a half years for me. So mid-97, I moved to New York after graduation. What drew you to New York? Other than the magic of New York. The magic of New York. (laughs) (laughs) I just knew that I couldn't live in the States without at least living in New York for a little while and see how it would fare and how it would be to live in, in, in this huge city that everyone just, you know, especially as Europeans, we hear about it. And it's just, it's this great city on the hill kind of thing. And so I just knew I needed to try it. I needed to do it. And I just, after, right after graduation, I started sending out tons of resumes for internships in New York studios. And when down there a couple of times to have interviews and the only place that really took me was this small studio called The Magic Shop in Soho. That's something you and former WC I guess Jessica Thompson have in common. That's right. We didn't meet in New York. She joined The Magic Shop after I left. Mm. But we we met here in, in Oakland and it was kind of funny to hear, to talk about our old boss. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I I started an internship at at the magic shop right away. And I think I did about three days a week as an intern. There were usually all day sessions and and the magic shop was great. It was a wonderful place to learn and watch incredible engineers and producers make records. And it was was great. It was one of my greatest experiences to, to work there. Unless that was a paid internship. It wasn't. And it wasn't. Okay, so that leaves you four days a week to to make some money to live in New York. Yeah. So I kind of had two jobs or two gigs that I did to make money. One was with a tech that had his shop downstairs in the magic shop. His name was Matt Priest. He would buy old Neves and refurbish them or fix them up and sell them. And so he had a lot of soldering work to do and so or crimping, a lot of Elko crimping. So I would I would get some hours with him every now and then. So that was great. Also, I learned how to solder at that point. And the other one was Steve Rosenthal, who is the owner of, Ma- of the Magic Shop. He opened up a music club called The Living Room in, what was that, 98, 90, 97 or 98, I don't remember now. And he hired me to be the sound guy. So I think it was five nights a week I did sound there. And then that gave me enough money to survive and pay the rent. And I didn't have time to go out anyway and didn't have the money to go out anyway. So it was, it was kind of okay. I just had to pay rent and food and that was it. That's great because, I mean, you're immersed in your internship at the Magic Shop three days a week. You're running live sound. You're learning some tech skills. It's just, that's a total immersion that I just, I'm sure, had a great impact on you. Oh, absolutely. That's all I that I lived recording and music production and music and and just the energy in New York, walking home from the from the studio at two o'clock in the morning and not having space to walk on a sidewalk because there's so many people just out just socializing and partying and having a good time. That was the electricity of the city just kept me going and it was exhilarating. And and even though I just I worked 14, 16 hour days usually and but I didn't I didn't care. How long did you live there? Three years. What caused you to, to leave New York? My wife. She grew up in Oakland. She's an Oakland native, and her parents started to get a little older, and she just wanted to go home and be closer to them, and I couldn't refuse. And so we moved back in 2000. We moved to the Bay, Alameda, and then Berkeley, and now we're in, we're in Oakland. It was hard for me because I really liked it in New York. I liked the magic shop, obviously, but it meant for me to start over in the East Bay in, in California and kind of start from the bottom again. Because at that point, I was, so I was an intern for maybe about a year and then I started assisting. And by the time I left New York, I ran a lot of sessions too as, as a staff engineer at the magic shop. So you come to a new place like Oakland and you're, you're starting over, as you say, what is your approach? What is your mindset to get yourself embedded in the Bay Area recording scene? For me, I just knew I had to start from the beginning again because nobody knew me. I didn't have enough, good enough of a track record that I could just go into a studio and 
be a staff engineer or something like that. I, I didn't know the music scene, so I did try and, and meet some bands, but that was never my forte is, is to go out and just cold call bands and, hey, you know, I, I like your show. Do you want to do some recording? That was never, I was never good at that. So for me, it was more about finding a studio that I could work at and meet people there and just make connections and kind of expand my social environment that way. So that's kind of what I did. And first, I kept looking around for studios. I actually started interning again. I interned a day at Toast. I hung out at Tiny Telephone for a few days. And then I ended up at Studio 880. John Lucchese hired me as kind of a, I guess I was just an intern or assistant manager or something like that. But before that, it took about three months to get that job. But before that, I actually worked at Savage Beast, which then became Pandora. So I started working as a music analyst mm. right when the company was still really, really young. We were maybe about 10 music analysts at that point. And so I did, I did that for about three months, which was a very interesting experience. I didn't realize that was what Pandora was called before it was Pandora. Yeah. And they didn't have the computer systems yet. So we would actually analyze the music and write them down on sheets of papers and then hand it down. And downstairs, they would enter it into computers and databases. And it was, uh, it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting to even imagine that now. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. okay, we'll run it down to the downstairs people and we'll put know, it in the big I computer. Know. So then... I started working at Studio 880 and that was great because so Studio 880 eventually had three rooms. But when I started, it was only Studio A, which is just a big room. He had an SSL console in there. But he was in the process of building Studio B at that point, which in the end was a, a there was a, a 9,000 in there. And he kind of eventually tasked me to kind of oversee that a little bit and manage that a little bit to get that done. And then after he was done with B, he started to build C, Studio C, which was kind of a smaller project studio. And I helped build that. I wired that. And it was interesting to just kind of see a studio built up. And I met a lot of great people there during, during that time. I, I was able to either assist or engineer a couple of cool projects of, of local bands and bigger and smaller. And it was, again, it was a great experience to be there. And I feel like I keep saying this to because so many people have gone through Studio 880. And as I've said it on numerous episodes to the audiences outside of the Bay Area, that is, once again, that Studio 880, as you may or may not have heard me say, that turned into Jingle Town because Green Day bought it from John. Mm -hmm. Because they, exactly. they were recording there all the time. Isn't that correct? Yeah, so they started working there when they did... What's the one before American Idiot? I don't remember now, but that was before my time anyway. Mm -hmm. So I met them when they started writing American Idiot. That was around 2003, I want to say. And so they spent a whole year in the studio writing that record. And, and Chris Dugan came with the band and I was there as a staff engineer already. So the two of us, we kind of tag teamed that whole process. Sometimes we had two studios going at the same time, but they did all the writing for that record was done during that time. And it w what a blessing it was to see a band like that in the process of making an incredible record. That was just an experience that I'm glad I was able to have and, and to see how that works and just to be there while they were doing this. And just not only writing the record, but also being the, the creative process. And we, we did a lot of different stuff too. I think that we did, we did a Christmas record. We did another record that sounded like Devo. And then they, it was called The Network. Um, we did a different record during that time as well. So there was a lot of stuff going on during that year in just all part of the process of them writing that record. Oh, gr you're saying Green Day actually made a Christmas record and... Yeah, it was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I get it, I get it. Well, what can you share as an overarching thing that you observed of, of the band? I mean, they've come up a number of times on this podcast just because of past guests between Lee Bothwick and Chris Dugan and all the different people going in and out of Studio 880 slash Jingle Town. Green Day has come up a number of times. So what can you share with us about that process that you observed? What really impressed me was the dynamic of the band. It's a band at that point, they've been together for maybe 15 years or something like that, and how they knew exactly when to have fun and when to be serious about their work. 
There was a play time and there was a work time. And I could change in a second. When Billy said, okay, let's, let's stop this. Let's go in the studio and let's record. Nobody argued. They all knew, okay, yeah, it's time to work now. And just that work ethic to see that was, was amazing. I mean, there was a lot of play time, but there was a lot of really hard working time too. And how they were able to really switch between the two was amazing to see. And after all these years, how well of a machine this disorganization is, as far as the creativity goes, there was no ego. There was, at least I didn't see it, but it was just a well-oiled machine and and so productive, super productive and, and professional. And this is an interesting point on your website. You list that you were awarded a tech award for technical excellence in recording Green Day's American Idiot. So... Mm-hmm. Tell me about that, about that process. Well, the, <laughs> once once the record was recorded, once we were done, the record was completed at 880. It wasn't jingled then at that point. At 880, they actually went down to L.A. and re-recorded the whole record. Yes. That's why Chris and I only got a additional engineering credit, not an engineering credit, because I want to say 90, 95% of the record got re-recorded in LA again after that whole year. Why did they do that? I think it was because the the time in Oakland was mainly a time to write the record. Okay. And flesh out the songs. And some of the recording was a little rough because, you know, there's just two mini operas on the record, which we basically edited together. So Billy would come in and say, okay, I got another piece for the mini opera. Let me add that to it. And so it was... It's just piecing it together, basically. And it was an editing nightmare. And at the end of the day, those mini operas didn't sound that great because just so much editing involved in different songs. And so when they went down to L.A., as I understand, they rehearsed these long songs and were able to actually play most of it in one piece. Okay. And I mean, I got to say, once I heard the record, once it was done and hearing the songs that I heard in Oakland, it was a big difference in, in a positive way. I mean, that's, that record sounded amazing. Still does. So that time that you spent with them turned into basically a giant pre-production, an yes. epic pre-production session. Correct. Okay. Correct. I do remember the first time recording the vocals for American Idiot. Just Billy and I were in the studio. We were in Studio B, and he laid down the, the, the vocals for that song. He came in and asked, do you think the lyrics are too drastic? Should I, should I, is that okay? Should I change anything? <laughs> Please. First of all, don't ask me, but second of all, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, that's one thing I, I certainly remember. That's an interesting point you bring up, being in that position, because even people on that have had that level of success have those insecure moments or those moments where you potentially have the opportunity to intervene, and that can either be a great thing or it can be a disastrous thing. And you telling me that reminds me of doing a, a live at KFOG session with Robert Cray and his drummer telling me in the control room before the audience comes in and goes, hey, if you need Robert to change anything on his amp and you want it to sound any different, just let him know. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I am not going to tell Robert Cray anything about his guitar sound. Yeah. I'm very old school that way that I was kind of raised, even at school, they kept telling us to, you get out of school, you have some experience in engineering. I mean, the last semester of school, I would run weekly orchestra sessions, like 30-piece orchestras, and I was the head engineer for that. And I had two assistants below me and all that stuff. So they were huge sessions, and I was the head engineer for those. But they also told us, once you get out of school, you're going to have to start from the bottom again. And you're going to have to learn studio etiquette. And you'll be making tea and running food errands and all that stuff. They really made sure that we didn't get out of school thinking, oh, we're going to mix the next big record. And so that that kind of always stayed with me. And I always wanted to make sure it was my time and place to actually say something in a, in a professional situation, making a record. If I'm the assistant engineer, it was not my place to say anything. If I were the was the engineer and there was a producer in the session, I would talk to the producer, not necessarily the artist directly. And all this kind of dynamics are really important to me because if, as an engineer and producer, if I have an assistant that just starts talking to the band about their music without going through me, that kind of derails the whole 
kind of flow of work and dynamic and power structure and all that. And I don't like that. So I am very firm believer of, in a way, a hierarchy in a studio because I went through it and I learned it in that old school way. Mm-hmm. A chain of command of... Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because... You know, as, as an engineer, as a producer, you have to pay your dues. You have to acquire skills and mostly not technical skills to, to get to where you are. Because as an engineer, once you've done it for a long time, the technical aspect just kind of goes in the background. It's more about the creating, the client, the musician behind a microphone than really the microphone. And so those are skills that... I feel like take a long time to learn. And if you're a young kid coming in a studio and you think you know everything because you've watched a couple of videos or you went to school for two years, that's just not the case because you have to kind of sit in a room and experience that first. So how long did you run at 880 last? About three years. I, I tend to go in three years. I was going to say, that's, there's a pattern Steps. there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. During the Green Day sessions, I kind of made the switch to becoming a freelancer. And I teamed up with this local drummer, Michael Urbano. And so him and I started a production company. And I lived in his duplex in Berkeley. He owned a a duplex there. And in the backyard, there's a two-car garage that he converted into a little, I wouldn't really call it studio. It was just kind of soundproofed a little bit. But so we set up shopping there and started doing projects together. And that was that was very exciting. So for the audience who doesn't know Michael Urbano, Michael is, first of all, he's one of the most fantastic drummers I have ever observed. Absolutely. When I was out in my early 20s playing in my bands and I came across Michael in a club, watched him play and was just like mesmerized by his playing. And you've heard him play on hits by Smash Mouth, Sheryl Crow, Cracker. I think right before COVID hit, he got recruited to go play drums with Lindsey Buckingham. And of course, that got a little derailed, but I think things are in motion to change that. But a fantastic drummer, really great drummer and fun to work with. Very passionate. Very passionate, very passionate and incredible producer too. He doesn't do enough of producing, but when we worked together, it was really cool to see him work. And I was kind of, and especially in the beginning, I was kind of his hand. He had a sonic vision. He had a very clear vision of, of the music that he wanted to do. And so I kind of helped him materialize that to make it, make it sound the way he was hearing it. And that's when he found this band Flipside, Oakland's hip-hop crossover pop band. And we did a demo with them. During the time, I was still in the studio with Green Day, and we finished a three-song demo, and I played it for Rob Cavallo, who was the producer in A&R for Green Day at that time, and he was in the studio, and he just absolutely loved it, and that kind of turned into a little bit of a bidding war between Warner and Interscope, and eventually Flipside signed with Interscope, and Michael and I got to do the whole Flipside record in that garage. (laughs) And it was mixed by Spike Stent in London, which was awesome because I got to go there and we did recalls with them together. And that was a great experience just to be there in, in the room with Spike Stent. I think he did, did some Madonna stuff. He did some Bjork stuff. He did Spice Girls. That's That kind of was his big breakthrough. And he eventually moved on to do a lot of stuff with Muse, I guess, mm. I, I think. So he's a huge British mixer. I think he did stuff with U2 as well. And so it was great to see him at work. I mixed that record that I engineered and co-produced for over a year. And yeah, after the Flips Out record, we moved on and did a record with Latif, the truth speaker, who's part of the Quantum Projects crew with Black Alicious. So we did a record with him and tried to get him signed. Unfortunately, that didn't lead anywhere, but that was a really good experience as well. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Up to this point, you've got some experience, loads of experience actually, underneath your belt. How, as a freelancer, did you approach these situations financially? How did you come into a project and state, this is what I need to make on this or what's available to make? Because... My mistake in the past has always been diving headfirst in from the recording side and neglecting the financial end of it until it became, oh, that's what's, okay, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to make much on this. As a, it took me a really long time to actually make some money. It took me, I want to say, close to almost 10 years to, until I felt like, you know what, I'm actually making a little bit of money. To me, at first, I really didn't want it to be an engineer, mixer, co-producers. That's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to be good at and be known for. But then a little, a few years into it, being a freelancer, I realized it's not going to cut it. I won't be able to make enough money. And so diversifying my job description and my skills kind of saved me because I started teaching. I started writing music as well. And that helped me just have different sources of income. I always say I, I have a lot of pots on my stove to make, actually make a meal because it, not each aspect of my career always does well. So I can kind of lean back on, on different things. Diversifying was key. The other thing is I'm kind of frugal. And so keeping my overhead low was always something that I strive for. And sometimes I'm a little too frugal. I know that. <laughs> and a little too cheap. But at the same time, it allows me to do certain projects for, for less or take on a project that be, just because I love it or do spec stuff or also say no every now and then where I don't need it. I'd rather spend time for the family or do my own music. So that kind of helped me survive too. That's interesting in an in audience. If you're paying any attention here, Rito is speaking my language, <laughs> being frugal, diversifying. These are all things I've talked about. Well, of course, you listen to the show, so you've heard me talk about it. When you talk about being frugal, I want to dive a little deeper into that. What does that mean to you? Is that frugal in your lifestyle? Is that frugal in your equipment choices when you buy gear? It's definitely lifestyle. That's for sure. So also gear... I do think about when I want to buy a piece of gear, I definitely think about it and, and I make sure that to find enough reasons for me to actually buy it, not just, oh, this this sounds cool. Let me just get it. But having said that, I do have a nice rack of really nice gear. Oh, yeah. I see that manly very move there. No, that's not cheap. No, no, it isn't. But the stuff that I buy, I try to buy stuff that doesn't lose value. So it's kind of like an investment as well. So the microphones I buy, they're not cheap, but... I know they're not going to go down in, in value. Part of it is is my retirement as well. <laughs> <laughs> so once I really need money, I can start selling stuff. <laughs> the other thing is studio. I mean, since I started becoming a freelancer in 2003, except for last year, for about a year and a half, a little bit more than that, I never had studio rent. I always work from home. I had my home studio and did pretty much all the projects out of there. And that saved me a lot of money. That is really, and, and especially now where we're at with this pandemic, it's really ideal. It's probably one of the best moves I ever made was just working from home. Yeah. And understanding it can be really hard for, for some people that don't have enough space, that don't have a house that, that lends to having a, a studio. And that, that makes it harder. And so I'm very lucky and fortunate that 
our house is big enough that I can accommodate a space that I can bring in clients and I can I can play drums and and mix with the neighbors won't care and all that stuff. So it's I'm I'm very lucky that way. So you're frugal and then you're diversifying, which I think that saved me over the years. Mm-hmm. Just having a hand in all these different things to create income streams. So right. when do you decide that you're going to say no to a project? Usually time. First, I try to push it down the line. And then, so it's usually time constraints. I mean, I have to say, when I moved out of the Bay, I kind of made the conscious, especially when, when we started having kids, I, I made the conscious decision to have the, the family be priority number one. Because I knew that if I would go down, down to LA, the scene would be a lot bigger and I could potentially do really well down there. That's just kind of what I thought about myself and my abilities. But staying here, smaller scene, not as many big projects. So it's, it would be a lot harder to... And, and my dream was always to be... oh one of the biggest, whatever, big engineer, make big records and all that stuff. But once we started to have a family, I realized, no, this is ha- this has to be my pr- priority, number one. And so if I feel like I'm working too much or there's too many projects, there's too many things on my plate, then I have no problem saying, look, I can't work today. I know you called and you want to book a session, but I just can't. I need to t- take some time off and spend some time with the family. And so that's kind of how I gauge things too when I realized that work has taken over my private life. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that, that work-life balance. I'm sure you know a lot of your clients don't have kids and there's you know no judgment there, nothing against them, but there is a different dynamic between people who have kids and people who don't. Like getting up in the morning, you mean? Right. Not getting up in the morning. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a different mindset altogether. Do you ever find yourself in, not clashes, but at odds with people who don't understand that family dynamic? I, I don't think so. Okay. No, usually people understand. And I, I feel like I've gotten to this to a point where people that work with me know that as well. They know that I'm not a guy who works 14 hours anymore. I guess I'm, I'm just really fortunate. I, I get to kind of tell people when I'd like to work and they are usually okay with that. So I very rarely have a very late night sessions. So yeah, I, it's just been okay. No issues. And how does that work when you're working with higher level people? Like I'm seeing that you worked with the Counting Crows here on your website. With projects like that, it's a little different because we're in a studio. We did that record at Fantasy and then I'm just locked out. So I I spend the whole day there. So that's it's a little bit of a different s- scenario then. But I'm talking about people just wanted to pick some hours and do some vocals at my place or something like that. But mm-hmm. for projects like that, bigger projects, oh yeah, I'm there in the studio with, I think we we were there for six weeks, maybe, with the Counting Crows. And it was every day, 10 to 10 or something like that. And my family knows that and they're okay with it because it doesn't happen that often. really doesn't happen that often. Those kind of lockout days. That hasn't happened to me in a long time, really. And how do you find yourself getting hired for projects like that? Like, how did how did the Counting Crows project come up? Usually luck. But this one was, I knew through Mike Lurbano, I met David Immergluck. He's one of the guitar players of the Crows. And so he did a bunch of sessions with Michael and with Michael and I. And so we knew each other. And then when it came time for the Crows to do a record, they wanted to have, for some reason, they wanted to have a local engineer. And Dave Immergluck threw my name in the hat and they called me and I got to do it. And Brian Deck from Chicago, he produced a record. So I was the engineer and Brian produced and it was another great experience because Brian is very, he does a lot of acoustic music, acoustic pop stuff. So he's very keen on getting clean recordings. So he would say, okay, record these acoustic guitars, but I don't want you to use any EQ on it and very, very little compression, if any. And as you know, recording an acoustic guitar without any EQ is is not easy because that the low mids just, just always kill you. Does that include <laughs> high-pass filters? Can you get away with that? No, not really. Oh, he didn't okay. like that either. So here I am. And fortunately, a session like that time is of no essence. So... I had enough time to run from the control room to the live room at back and forth 
adjusting the microphone until it sounded right. So it was like a, a little recording school for myself that how can I get the sound? Where is the micro where does the microphone have to sit so I get enough top end and not too much low end? And it's just a really good sounding guitar. And it was quite a learning experience, but but we got it there and he was happy and and everyone was pleased. That's good. And that also brings in my mind kind of a, a possibility for working with bigger acts. And as many of us know, there are lots of players like Michael Urbano who play with bands we've all heard of. So in this world, there's a ton of side players, hired guns that play with people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be a way into various projects because if you get well-known within the world of all the side people who are interacting with maybe the final decision makers in sessions like this, that's when you can get pulled in. And that happened here in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that happened with the Modest Mouse record too, actually. Oh. That was through Immergluck as well, because Dennis Herring, who produced that Modest Mouse record, produced a Counting Crows record previously. And so Dennis was looking for an engineer to actually record guitars with Johnny Marr, who for that record was with Modest Mouse. And I guess he talked to Emmy and Emmy said, oh, I know this guy who just worked with us. And well, that was before, actually. He just mentioned, oh, you know, he worked on, on Green Day and, and so he might be good at recording guitars. So I got hired to do that. So I, I actually went to Oxford, Mississippi for three weeks to work on that record, which unfortunately I didn't get to work with Johnny Marr because... When I got there, they just got done with basic tracking for about seven songs, I believe. And they needed to do a bunch of drum editing. So I got to drum edit for three weeks. Oh, my God. Lucky you. That's all I did. Yeah, lucky me. That's all I did. I got really good at Beat Detective, i tell you that. And crossfading, ooh, I was a champion. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing about... The drum sound that Modest Mouse has is usually like big kick drums, 22s, 24s with a long sustain. And Dennis didn't want me to really crossfade. He says, well, it, it introduces face problems when you do long crossfades. And so I think the most I could do was like a two or three millisecond crossfade on my edits. And when you edit on each eighth note, that's a lot of crossfades, a lot of edits that need to be crossfaded properly. And so it was quite a challenge to make a track sound smooth with that many edits with little crossfades like that. Wow. <laughs> Very specific requests. Very no much, EQ on the guitar. So. <laughs> no long crossfades on the drum edits. You've worked with some very specific be, people. Yeah, and you got to be... I, and I love those challenges, really, because in the end, I became a better editor. I became a better engineer because people wanted something very specific of me, which I would not have thought of, or I would have said, whatever, it doesn't matter. But because they were so adamant about it, you know, I never had a problem. I never said, oh, this is this sucks. I'm, I, I hate doing this. But I, I looked at it as a challenge. I was like, okay, let's go. Let's let's do this. I, I want to get really good at this. So you, as my boss or producer, are really happy with what I do. And so I look at it as a challenge, not kind of a punishment or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, it does sound like a challenge. Okay, and you're going to have to have one arm tied behind your back and only mouse with your left hand. That's right. But the, the thing is, it, it makes you really prepared for any situation in a studio. And when artists have very specific needs and asks that, that you don't lose your temper or disposition, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, sure. You want to do that? I'll do that for you and no problem. And we'll see if that's any better or not. So... It takes a lot for me to not accommodate someone. If someone has a wish or a demand, it's like, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's see. Maybe this make will make the record better. And if it does, great. If not, we'll just go back to what it was. Yeah. And do you ever find yourself coming from projects like that, going to the next project and accidentally implementing some of those ideas? Like how to record a guitar, yeah. you mean? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, those are skills that I've learned. I was like, I'm, yeah, no, of course. I mean, I, I still put the microphone pretty much where I put him for the County Crows record because I, I spent so much time figuring out where to put it. So, uh, yeah, that's in my toolbox now is knowing how to mic an acoustic guitar. <laughs> There's also the, the negative side of that is like I did a record where I was told, do not use any reverb, no delay, no reverb, nothing, totally nice. dry. The next record I went to go next, <laughs> I did that just out of habit. 
just, and I'm kind of, oh, this sounds good. Send it to them, and they're like, sounds great. Where's all the reverb, dude? Can we have some some cheese? I'm like, oh, right, sorry. <laughs> Different aesthetic. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that reminds me of when I first started mixing for other people, which is a fairly different beast from mixing your own stuff because you work with a producer that was there during tracking and then you get the files and and you mix it and you haven't never heard it before you don't really know what's behind these tracks and so I started mixing I started mixing a lot of projects for a couple of producers in Switzerland actually that would send me their files and stuff was produced really well but at that point it was early 2000s I didn't have a whole lot of experience in mixing. And so just, I had some bad habits. For instance, I would smash the two mix so much. And they, they kind of liked it because it, it made it just punchy and exciting. But for me, it was, I realized the mix kind of was so static that if they told me to, to turn up the vocals or something like that, I couldn't because it was just so smashed already. So I couldn't really do many changes as it got really hard. And so kind of unlearning some of these bad habits was quite a process. So kind of taking bad habits or things that I did before onto the next project. That definitely happened to me in mixing, where I would mix, just like you just said, something with a heavy bus compression and then the Rex record, I did the same way. And they're like, that sounds a little smashed. What are you doing? And so, yeah, I definitely experienced that too. Well, so how are you functioning today? How are you functioning in this environment with COVID? Are you mixing a bunch? Are you surviving? So... One big change was I moved back home. So in the last year and nine months, I had a room over at Airship Laboratories in their Studio B. I did a lot of projects over there, did some tracking, mixing, obviously. But then in late April, I realized it's not worth paying the overhead because of me being frugal because I couldn't get any clients in the studio. I couldn't do any tracking sessions and and all the mixing and editing or writing that I did, I could do at my house. I didn't have to have a studio that I was paying rent for. So I moved back home and set up shop here again and realizing that almost 90% of my work I can do in a small room like this where I still have my drum set set up, I have a piano, I have guitars and all that stuff. So a lot of the production work and overdubs I can do right here. I don't need a big studio. And if I ever need to track drums in a big room or full band recordings, I can rent out a studio somewhere else. So coming back home was was definitely a big change again because I'm here again and it's not as professional, the, the facility. But at the same time, I was saving some money and again, was able to be close to, to my family. I've been doing a lot of mixing, some writing for sure. And I started to do some vocal sessions again as well, where I have one or two people tops come in and everyone wearing masks and, and do, do vocal sessions that way. So I've, I've definitely started to kind of have smaller sessions again. Absolutely. I want to talk about that, that period of time that you were at Airship. Being frugal, what drove you to rent a space? That's a good question. So MySpace here in Oakland for about 10 years, and it was beautiful. I have a wonderful view and no commute and nothing. So it was, it was a great setup. But at that point, the kids were at school. My wife was at work. So pretty much all day I was by myself. And during that time, I was also doing occasional sessions at Fantasy as one of their auxiliary engineers. So Jeffrey would call me whenever the other three staff engineers were busy. He would call me to, to do a session, voiceover or jazz session, whatever, anything. And I always loved going to Fantasy and being part of that community. You can walk down the halls, there's musicians walking around and techs and other engineers and producers, and you can just kind of exchange experiences and just shop talk. And being home alone, I didn't have any of that. And so missing kind of a community was a big part of me wanting to find a room in a multi-room facility that not only, I mean, the other thing that I didn't have here was was a tracking room. And I really wanted to get more into tracking full bands and bigger drum recordings and things like that. And so I started looking around and Studio B, that's the upstairs room and at Airship was open. And so I just jumped on it. And I was there for a year and nine months. But I did enjoy being in a different room. It was like going to work. There was a commute. I would go there every day or almost every day and put in my hours, no matter if I had work or not. If I didn't have work, I would 
look for something to do and create work. And that's that's another thing as, as a freelancer that I failed to mention was that there are a lot of times that I don't have anything to do, that there's no work, no paying work in front of me. And I have to create work to get paid. So I can't just sit and wait for someone to call me. I have to just do something and that could potentially lead to an opportunity or a project or something that actually brings in some money. So I do that a lot as well because I do have downtime and, and then that's when I get just creative and try to think of new things to do or people to work with on spec or something like that. So now you're home and you're saving money, which is great. How do you find working from home when everybody's home? What are the pros? What are the cons? Well, one thing, I, I can't really play drums past five or six o'clock. That doesn't go over very well. The other thing is the vocal booth that I have is right underneath my daughter's bedroom. So she complains about how bad the singers are sometimes. And... Uh, <laughs> No, this I make I make everyone sound good. <laughs> and I hear people walking around, so there's a little bit of noise. And so it can be challenging if I do something acoustic guitar recordings and things like that. But I, I'm not a super purist in that sense that I need to have absolutely no noise floor and things like that. I'm a fairly easy about that stuff. So for me, it's more kind of grabbing the, the performance and the feel of music as opposed to the sonic quality. I have good microphones for that. Yeah, and, and the unfortunately the audience doesn't get to see this, but the vibe just behind you, it's so homey, you know, and it's, it, but it's... Oh, yeah, it's like re recording in your living room. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so playing drums at home, how does that work for everybody that's in the house? Well, they knew once I, once I moved back, I told them, look, I'm going to be playing some drums every now and then. And they're okay. They know it, 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 this is not a, a quiet home at all. So we're, we're all kind of used to noise, beautiful noise. Yeah. And so, but again, I, I try not to play before 10 and after five or six. And I don't play that much, but it certainly is nice to have a, set, a drum set up, ready to go. All the mics are always plugged in. I can start recording in less than 10 minutes. I can have it start recording my drums, which is kind of nice. You have a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old. So I assume yes. when school starts for my kids in about a week or so, a little over a week, they're going to be homeschooling 100%, well, for the foreseeable future. I assume it's the same mm -hmm. for your kids? Yep, yep. So that obviously presents a couple challenges. I know for us it presented an internet challenge. We had to jack up our service so mm. that we have enough bandwidth so my wife and I could both be on Zoom calls, the kids could be in Zoom classes online, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got some sonic challenges there, too. Will that limit your ability to record drums during the day? We'll see, I guess. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> we'll see how annoyed they get. I don't think so. Okay. I will just roll with it and see what happens. My oldest daughter is actually, she was supposed to start college, and she's actually going to go to Europe for a little while and to college from afar. And so she won't be bothered by my noises for sure. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you, is most of your work word of mouth or how do you get work? It is word of mouth. Absolutely. I, I try cold calling and stuff like that, and it just doesn't work for me. And I'm, that's definitely one of my weaknesses is the, the networking and the hustle. I'm not good at it. I'm not very good at selling myself. And so I'd like to let my work speak for itself, even though that's sometimes hard because people don't understand what's actually involved in making a good recording, a good record, especially as a producer. But I've been doing it long enough that I do have a few people that I, I have worked with that do recommend me to other people. So I kind of have a pool of clients that I work with on a regular basis. So yeah, it, it is definitely word of mouth for sure. Well, that seems to have worked pretty well so far. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I've been working in music, whatever music production, teaching, writing for licensing, producing, engineering, mixing for as long as I have, and I, I'm still doing it. I mean, I I could not have done it without the support of, of my family, my wife especially, and that just kind of gave me the space to develop my career and do what I like to do. And perseverance is definitely one thing too. I mean, there, there's been many times where I did look around for other things to do, other jobs or going back to school because it was just so rough and there wasn't a whole lot of work. And I just decided to stick with it and see it through. And in the end, it just, it, it always worked out. Because your, your wife works as well. Does yes, she work in a, in a corporate environment? She works in nonprofit. Okay, okay. Yeah, so semi. But having two people earning 
I have to give credit to my wife too. I mean, her work in the corporate world has helped bridge the gap here and there when things get Absolutely. a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. It's the same here. Absolutely. Health insurance, just the stability, yeah. and that definitely, yeah, absolutely. We wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I, I'd be looking for health care elsewhere as well as a result. So. Right, right. That is probably, I think, one of the unspoken things that a lot of engineers, especially male engineers, because I think it's very common these days for women in relationships to have corporate jobs or jobs that... Traditionally, I think if you go back like 50 years, men would typically have. Now women have those jobs, Mm -hmm. and it's guys like us that have the wives that have good jobs that help solve this, this financial gap that occurs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And she definitely helps me to stay focused, too, in a sense that when we did go through a rough time, she sat me down and said, look, you need to get a steady income. This is not working out. You need to make more money. You need to figure this out. And that definitely helped me to just kind of look for more opportunities, expand all the stuff that I do. So it kind of, it kind of keeps me on my toes too. And I'm I'm fully aware of the situation that I'm kind of floating and I do as as much as I can. But at the same time, if anyone needs to make more money, it has to be me because Mm. she brings in the stability and I need to raise that with whatever I can. And if I fall short of that, it's my responsibility to make up for it, not hers. And so that that's definitely a, a thing that keeps me pushing forward and get up every day and say, okay, what can I do better? How can I make this work so everyone's happy and we can survive me doing what I do? You know, that's obviously we're motivated and we're, I think we're pushed by what we see from our peers, but This is another level of motivation. If you are in a relationship like yours or mine, there's a sense of accountability that we feel Mm -hmm. that pushes us. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would have that if I were just a lone wolf. Absolutely. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. I would still be trying to become a good engineer or the best mixing engineer out there. But because of those challenges and, and her pushing me, I got into other things like teaching, like writing music and that I probably would have never wanted to get into because like, oh, I, you know, a real recording engineer doesn't do that. And so it, it's worth a lot and just kind of gets you out of the comfort zone. And I'm more challenged by that than by, by my peers, because the thing about my peers is I don't know their situation. I don't know in what kind of environment they're working in and the tools that they have to work with and, and their background so much. But I know my situation. I know how I need to make my situation better. And that's what I have control over. And and at the same time, yeah, I challenge myself to become a better professional. And I do get some pointers from my peers, but the motivation itself doesn't come, comes from my immediate environment and, and situation, not somebody else's. It would be ideal, I'm sure, for many of us to have a singular success point, but that's not always possible. So to diversify really to make that success, I think, is crucial. Yeah, and what, what is, does it really mean, success? Right. Right? I mean, is, is, it, is it gold records on the wall? Is it a million dollars in the bank? Is it a healthy family, a good relationship with your spouse? Is it tons of friends? You know, I think it's different for everyone, and, and it changes, too, depending how your career is going, and you redefine success. I mean, I certainly have, and I still dream of certain things that I haven't achieved, but am I unhappy because of those unachieved goals? I don't think so. And so I have redefined success, certainly, because things have changed, situations have changed, and and that's okay. I think that's totally fine. These are all really great points. And I'm so happy that you're, you're willing to share a lot of this with me because it sounds like we're encountering a lot of the same realizations and situations with our families and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I tell you what, if people want to find out more about you, I take it they would go to smalltunemusic.com. Is that correct? Yeah, or just raytopeter.com. That works okay. too. Same thing. Well, I will put those links in the show notes as well as links to anything else you happen to send me. Rato, cool. I'm so glad we got to hang out and talk. I know. <laughs> when this COVID thing blows over, we got to hang out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like we got a lot in common. Uh, we have a lot in common, a lot of mutual friends, and a lot of. St- I'm sure we have a lot of stories, other stories that we can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, I'll let you go, but thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. It was an honor. All right. Take care. You too. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Rato Peter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today, my friends. I want to thank everybody that helped out. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Stop on by workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.